welcome back to another episode of Opera Omnia, the podcast that spends an entire season going into a director's filmography. This is episode number three of season number one, and we are looking at the great and powerful Ben Wheatley. Joining me is my co-host for the entire season, and to be honest, I just wish that Ben Wheatley would release another five movies in the next couple of months, so I can keep <laughs> him for the, so I can keep him selfishly for the whole year. It is my dear friend and phenomenal podcast mind, the phenomenal great Mr. Watson. How you doing, sir? Oh, Mr. McLeish, it is good to be back rocking that Teaputs Collective with another Opera Omnia show here. I am, dude, I am stoked to have the opportunity to talk with you yet again, buddy. I just finished, just finished a little bit before, well, my kitchen pizza mishap that is, I told you about, that delayed things like by about a half hour or so. Before that, though, I had just finished, Duncan, recording with Mr. Dave Z, uh, our show, the Watsy Party Horse Show, and he wanted me to give you a message. He said... Tell that Irish bastard hello for me. Now, he didn't actually call you Irish, nor did he call you a bastard. He actually just told me to tell you hello. So uh, I think I got, I think something got lost in translation. But anyway, he says hello, and, and I am rather well, buddy. How are you in, in this whole pending apocalyptic situation in which we find ourselves now, buddy? What a difference a week makes. So last week we sat down to record, and then my oh. internet completely gave out on me which like almost sent me into crisis mode i was like the world is coming to the end if i don't have <laughs> internet and yeah. then little did i know that literally four days later my office would be like no one can work in here for months go and, and go and work at home and i was like no this is actually this is like it's weird how things put things in context you know it's like you put something beside something else and you realize that problems like maybe lack of internet for a night is trivial in comparison to a global pandemic so yeah just a little bit so this has been delayed a week but to be honest we did give me an opportunity to sit back down and watch sightseers again um which it was, you know, it's a pure joy for me. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, I mean, I would love to say that you're a spoiled and blessed individual for being able to record with um, a, a truly great podcaster in Dave C and then sit down and do a bit of Ben Wheatley chat on Opera Omnia. But I like to think that incredible things happen to incredible people. So I hey. think this is just the universe giving you your dues, buddy. Well, well, well. I, I like the way you think, buddy. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's how my brain works. It's how it tries to rationalise the insanity of this planet. Now, you you did tell me this story, but I, I feel that um, you can't just touch on something on a podcast and then people will be sitting, you know, wherever they are going, what, pizza incident? He didn't explain oh. the pizza incident. He needs to give context to the pizza. <laughs> go, go and explain uh, cliff notes to the listeners out there. Um, the, the manic 45 minutes before we start recording. Yeah, yeah, and and there's a part of it that I didn't tell you too, which is so strange, Duncan. You know, and, and for the listeners here, I've had two kitchen-related disasters happen in within two days of one another. We're recording right now on a Saturday, mm-hmm. and on Thursday I had one as well before I was about to sit down to do a podcast. But what had happened was Dave Z and I just wrapped up recording episode 11 of the Watsy Party Horror Show. Kicked ass. It was a lot of fun. It ends. I'm like, okay, I got a half hour before Duncan and I got to get on the horn. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to make a quick little thin uh, thin crust cauliflower cheese pizza, throw that in the oven, make a cup of coffee, chill for a bit. All of a sudden, 
I'm setting up my software. I run, get back to my bedroom, put the pizza in the oven, get back to the bedroom, put, uh, put, <laughs> put, put my, you know, get on Skype, get the recording software going, just get my notes up, just skimming through them. And then I smell smoke. I'm like, oh, oh that's not good. So open up the oven and it, and it, and smoke just hits me in the face, wafts all over the place. I'm like, what has gone on? And I guess the pizza had split in half in the middle and had fallen through the racks onto the element. And it's just a, a disaster. And I was like, okay. And now it's like 10 minutes till we record. So I'm like, Duncan, uh, can I get uh, 10 or 15 minutes, buddy? And, you know, and you, you had like a painting project or yeah, something I, like I was that. Actually, so. I'm actually in the process of painting a room. And uh, it, it, uh, there was one wall left. And I was like, I cheekily can fit this in before we start recording. Yeah. Um, and so, then that hey, ran a little bit over. But it was serendipity, I, I like to think, because everything everything worked out exactly. So what was the, the, the mishap on Thursday then? Oh, Thursday. Gosh, I was about to sit down to record with our buddies from the Horrorcast. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm new to that show, or not new to that show. I'm new as a co-host on that show. I get home from work. I'm already about a half hour late because they know. They, they're they East Coast uh, people. I'm a West Coast, and, you know, this for American listeners. That's a three-hour time difference. They usually start when I get home. Sometimes I can catch it, and the lead host, Mark Nato, is like, hey, just catch us when you can. And I'm like, thank you, guys. You know, they even started late, too. I get home. I'm, I'm about ready to jump on. I'm telling him, hey, okay, t- I'm about to tell him. Tell me when the second review of the two reviews you're doing is going to start. I'll jump in there and then just kind of fire in halfway through the show. Hey, Watson shows up. What's up, gangsters? But as I'm writing them this message, I hear an explosion out in my kitchen my, where my son was doing dishes. And it didn't sound like he dropped something. This sounded mm-hmm. different. I go out there, buddy, and there is glass. I, I can't even describe to you the glass I am seeing on all the counters, in, in down the stove uh, burners, in it, in and on every appliance, in the dining room, in the entryway, all over the floor, the, the adjacent countertop, the open dishwasher. I'm like, Skyler, that's my son. I'm like, Skyler, what the hell? And he's like, I guess he had. Uh, I taught him a dishwashing hack where when you're doing some dishes, you know, get get on our tea kettle, put some boil, you know, get some boiling water going all on that, right. and then yeah. it'll help you out. Well. He hit the wrong burner on which I'd placed this oven-safe, big, fat glass dish, tempered glass, and it exploded. Bloody jail. Oh, oh, dude. For the next hour and a half, like, I'm, I'm picking up glass pieces, sweeping it all, not just off the floor, and I'm efficient. And so I'm getting slivers of glass, tiny slivers out of everything. It was it was a Thursday night to to remember. So I missed the forecast there. And then when I smelled the smoke, I was like, there is no way I'm missing Duncan today. This is not <laughs> fucking happening. <laughs> oh, man. It's like a scene right out of fucking Final Destination, dude. Oh, don't say that. <laughs> but Duncan. Weird, I was about to say there's a weird thing. Right, let me, let me just... Let, before, we, before we jump into Sightseers, because like, like, that, that is a movie that needs to be discussed. But oh. there's a weird trend going on right now, of which has kind of caught me on the back for you. Because we know that movies are... It's, it's circular every 20 years or so the directors that are going to be making movies will be making references to movies from when they were growing up which is usually a good I mean your average director mid-20s maybe into their 30s will reference movies they saw at informed periods it's usually movies 20 years before um, yeah. so like as we are swinging into Weirdly, uh, as we're swinging into 2020, as uh, you know, it's natural for people to be looking at like the very late 90s, early 2000s, and there was a lot going on there. 
had you told me 21 years ago that when Final Destination came out as a movie, it would have such an impact on movies being released right now, I would not have believed you. However, I can now count about six movies I've seen in the last two years that are straight up like clones, <laughs> like clones yeah. of Final that are, are, are completely um, appropriated massive aspects of that plot into their own movies. And I mean, I love Final Destination, but it's this weird thing where it to me is the most unlikely of all those movies at that time period to have this sort of effect because you know it feels like a kind of, and it was for all intents and purposes, a, a kind of rejected X Files script. Um, yeah, yeah. That that has now become this weird like forebearer of like just like movies off the top of my head. Polaroid makes direct reference, you know, in terms of what, what they're doing um, as a foreshadowing death-like presence, you know, that's going to come and get you in the order that you had your photo taken. Um, oh. Like Truth or Dare, which came out two years ago, Blumhouse, um, you know, it's once again, it's this idea of who the order that you play the game is the order that the creature comes after you. Um, and then just the same director funnily enough, has just put out that Fantasy Island movie, which I did not enjoy, in a complete mess of a movie. But, um, <laughs> there's a whole section in the middle of that where that movie just becomes Final Destination. Like, just, wow. like, out and out becomes Final Destination. And I'm like, maybe, the, maybe, maybe, like, it had a bigger impact. I can't remember it being a, I remember it being a movie I really enjoyed, but I can't remember it yeah. setting the world on fire. People were like, one of the most influential movies this year, Final Destination. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's, it's fucking everywhere. It's like, and I need to just, I, I needed to get it off my chest. I've been holding this cross, <laughs> carrying it with me <laughs> since I watched that movie. And I was like, you know, I'm gonna, Mr. What, I'm just going to tell him right now, keep your eyes peeled for it, because I think it is more rife than I have even noticed I think and, and listeners out there if you if you're aware of this movie having an impact out with the movies I've just mentioned there in recent times let me know because it's and, and now they're you know they're doing a new one um, and I'm like oh right so there's another Final Destination movie happening yeah yeah they're, they're, all the movies around that are like Final Destination it's, it's, it's too much for my brain to handle no that's a that's a fascinating observation my friend and just so long as the 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 final destination plot and, and and all those things stay in fiction and don't invade my real life when I'm trying to podcast, Duncan. <laughs> yeah, as, long, as, as long as as long as it is not real, um, that exactly would, that would make us happy. That would make us happy. Um, so I mean, it's like last time we went for ages at the start here, and I feel like if we jump right into the movie, maybe we're shortchanging anyone. Is there anything that you want to chat about, or are you just ready? to sink your teeth in to a little bit of Ben Wheatley's sightseers. Oh, buddy, I am ready to go sightseeing with you, sir. Phenomenal. Right then, ladies and gents, we're going to take a short break just now. You're going to hear that trailer for Ben Wheatley's follow-up to Kill List. And everyone's like, this guy, this guy gets it. Dark, brooding, mysterious, folk horror cinema. I can't wait to see what his next movie is like that. Horror comedy. <laughs> Everyone's like, huh? Um, because <laughs> why not? Uh, you know, subvert expectations. Always, always do that. Uh, so you're going to hear the trailer for it. Sightseers, when we return, we're going to be discussing that movie right after this. 
Want to learn more about horror directors with a lighthearted look at three of their movies? Meet fearless podcaster Gore Blimey. I've been unsettled by bats in the past and startled by parrots, and I've even been known to jump at the odd cockatoo. Discover horror films that are classics and others, too. There's a topless aerobics massacre, an exploding rock singer, cannibals, nude martial arts, a deep fright process. But it's not all silliness. You'll get proper movie breakdowns, opinion, and background information, too. Yep, in the 80s and 90s, Jeff Stryker was huge in gay porn. In every sense. So if you're a horror film fan, come and check out the Trilogy of Terror podcast at strangeanddeadly.com or find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or on your podcatcher. One of those people that has a certain charisma and a certain style, and I'm just hoping one day he'll rub off on me. The Trilogy of Terror podcast, where we try three times harder to give you the willies. Show me your world, Chris. Well, I thought we'd start with Christ Tram Museum. Great. Dear Mum, Yorkshire is lovely, not like you said at all. They can smile, and they do sell my pasta sauce. The caravan bed is quite short, but Chris is a sensitive lover. Hope you can be happy for me. Love, Tina. Yeah, good girl. You are going to pick that up. I didn't do that. If you don't pick up this excrement immediately, then I'm going to have to inform the National Trust. Report that to the National Trust, mate. I don't want this to ruin our holiday. Get it. Never thought about murdering innocent people before. It's not a person, Tina, he's a Daily Mail reader. Say one word and it's. I get it, it's just thinking outside the box. <laughs> the police are pursuing a ginger faced man and an angry woman. <laughs> Sit! You're a liability! You're just like your mother! Yeah, a bit. You didn't let him see you do number twos, did you, Tina? We both said what a nice couple we thought you were. Oh, I love her. I can fly! Everyone else seems to find it so easy to express themselves. I mean, even you've got your knitting. Have you had a nice holiday? Yeah. Had a brilliant holiday. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. And welcome back. So you have just heard the trailer for Sightseers from 2012. Dear God, this movie is eight years old already. <laughs> wow. I, I know. Uh, this one is directed by Ben Wheatley. Um, the writing credits on this one, the two leads, Alice Lowe and Steve Orham, but also uh, I think Amy Jump is also a writing credit on this one. I'll just double check on IMDb. It is. Amy Jump is Ben Wheatley's other half and has pretty much written every movie that he has done. The cast itself and the, the kind of main cast is Alice Lowe, uh, who is a phenomenal British um, kind of comedic actress and yes. Steve Orham who has uh, has had like a really interesting career he he will go on to work with Wheatley 
more and has worked with Wheatley in the past. He's done loads of bits and bobs, mostly in comedy as well. But what I kind of love about this dude is a couple of years ago, in between everything that he was doing, he decided to go out and do, you know, another little movie of such, which kind of really floored me um, and uh, it's a dark song I don't know if you ever saw a dark song oh is he he's the male lead in that yeah he is indeed wow yeah okay yes yeah, so he went off the the a dark song so um you know just like a really interesting sort of like dude in that he's he's kind of Hatched his, his wagon. I don't even know if that's a phrase. It sounds American. We'll just say it sounds good. Uh, pitched his wagon. Maybe sounds a bit better. Um, but he, he's kind of tethered himself. That sounds a bit more organic. Oh. Uh, he's kind of tethered himself to this... Um, uh, this kind of idea of of kind of doing either... It's almost... It's kind of folk horror influence kind of British like uh, cinema, genre cinema, or kind of comedy stuff. And it seems to be one of the two. And when he's doing the the kind of the, the kind of genre stuff, um, it, it tends to be uh, like a, a bit more kind of straight-laced with slight leanings towards kind of comedy. But when he goes to do comedy, it's out-and-out comedy. So I, I find him a really interesting can act her and then you've got Alice Lowe herself who was uh, pregnant what I two years ago uh, and whilst being pregnant wrote and directed Prevenge which she stu- starred in the main yep. role whilst being pregnant um, so fair play <laughs> nothing like showing everyone up isn't it you know what I mean um, right. and she's she's done a lot of stuff as well so you've got these two interesting kind of names involved with the, with the project overall. The synopsis on IMDb is Chris wants to show girlfriend Tina his world, but soon events conspire against the couple and their dream caravan holiday takes a very wrong turn. Now, first thing I need to ask before we get into this, caravans, I, I always assume as being an inherently British thing and kind of, you know... Uh, motorised homes I imagine being a more American thing um, do they have caravans in America? Um, wait what, what, is, what's a car- caravan? what's a so, caravan? so that, that has answered my question because no, yeah, no, there you are know. you, you, you are know. right that they're, they, they do seem to be if, if you're going about a you know a road trip or country travel, you you oh, you'll find Americans having RVs, mm. and and it seems as though yeah over there across the pond it is a yeah the, the caravans yeah so it's it's essentially a kind of a towable trailer that you live in, um, yeah yep, but yep. it's like like a mini version and they they're they're kind of they're still in, in, immensely popular in the UK. I did I went on caravan holidays when I was a kid. Um, oh, okay. And I, I don't have many fond memories of them because you're cramped oh. in a confined space with your family, who, to be honest, you just <laughs> wish would leave you alone. Um, and it's generally, you go to places which are massive campsites of other people who are also there with their families in caravans. And um, yeah, like shared communal sort of shower facilities. And Yeah, you'll see those here, Duncan. You, you will see those. I, I, I guess... 
I, I do see RVs more, mm. but you you will see that. I, I but I bet it's more popular there than here. Yeah, yeah. I guess which is weird because like you guys have a, a massive massive expanse of a country where you can pick places which are guaranteed mm-hmm. to have nice weather. Um, yep. You don't get that in Scotland. <laughs> like, okay, oh, really? <laughs> no, Scotland is like like maybe eighty percent of the years. Like it's kind of like it's how I imagine. You know, like I imagine that you would be okay in Scotland because you are close to Seattle and you live on that kind of the grey overcast side of America. Yes. And not the super side. That's kind of Scotland. That's kind of oh. Scotland's climate. Is you know there there ain't a whole hell of a lot of clear skies and sunny days where i live it's mostly overcast and rainy oh i love it that yep. is it's okay i guess I'm, I'm coming over there so we gotta get i gotta see if uh karen gillen will date me uh <laughs> so she, I, she, I i i'm not good at the scottish accent but one thing she was doing an interview with jack black you mm-hmm. know because they were in that jumanji movie and she's scottish and she said one of the video games she likes to play is crash bandicoot and I was like, whoa, I love it. You did an American accent too. Let's not, I'm not letting you off the hook about something because I loved it. You recently did an episode, on, I binged a bunch of uh, T-Putts episodes recently, like like yesterday, and you did a really awesome American accent in one of them where you're joking around. I was like, look at Duncan. <laughs> uh, like my American accent is, is vanilla American accent. I can't really do the twangs. You've got, you've got, it's like in Scotland, if you drive... From where I am, if you drive like twenty minutes in any direction, you're greeted with a completely different accent. Like just like, than than yours. Oh yes, oh yes. Like it, what oh, you, is your accent in the scheme? I, I'm sorry, I, I, yeah. I'm hoping I'm not derailing this, but I have a fascination with accents. What is your accent in the scheme of Scotland? Because I have the, I guess what you could say the 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 neutral American accent that is like the newscaster accent where I don't twang anything. Mm. All my letters are in the right place. I say my INGs. I, you know, so my R's are where they're supposed to be, which is, you know, the hallmark of certain linguistic traits and such. Mm -hmm. What, 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 is yours? It's it's strange to say. To be to be fair, um, I think Mings is probably more a neutral one as well. If I'm honest, okay. I think um, as well. If you see Scottish newscasters speak, they tend to have the the kind of degree Scott approach to the Scottish accent, or the the Gerard Butler approach to the mm. Scottish accent, and which that, is you, yeah, to, 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 you know, what I mean the the. They have a particular way of speaking. It, you know, it inherently does sound Scottish, but there's no overt use of slang. I try and avoid a lot of slang in, in the way I speak. Um, unless, you know, I, I'm around people that will 100% appreciate what I'm saying. Um, but if you, <laughs> for example, listen to Scotland Liam versus Evil, um, Liam lives about 20 minutes from me and has, you know, almost a, like a broad Glaswegian accent. And it sounds completely different to how I sound so okay and okay. if you drive 20 minutes in another direction you're in our capital city of Edinburgh and the Edinburgh accent once again is like kind of more in line with mine but a little bit more I don't know it can be a bit more muddled um, and then if you start driving like an hour north you start getting like by the time you get to a place like Aberdeen which is about an hour and a half drive from me the accent's just nuts 
And then when you really? start, yeah, when you start dealing with the like Orkney or Shetland, which are the islands off the coast, their accent is just like other world. As well. Wow, <laughs> completely. I love, the I'm so thing. fascinated by this type of stuff, and I did not, Duncan. I swear to God, I didn't mean to derail this. No, no, I just, I had to know when you mentioned accents, buddy. <laughs> no, no, it's probably it's, it's something I, I don't. I, I suppose, in a lot of respects. The thing that's always perplexed me the most about doing recordings is like 75% of my listenership on any show I do is American. And I've okay. always kind of found that a bit bizarre in that I just assumed really? Americans would listen to Americans speak about films. I didn't think Americans would listen to like Scottish people or appreciate the accent um, like at yes. all. I thought like at times I have spoken to people and they're like, I don't understand what it is you've just said. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that it's because I've, I've learned over time to slow down the way I speak. Scottish people sure. tend to speak pretty quick, um, which just makes things sound like uh, I what was it? <laughs> I once described as sounding like I'd had a stroke. Uh, oh, yeah, or, or chewed. Well. A, 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 with, I think Jamie Jenkins once described uh, other Scottish podcasters as sounding like they just chewed glass. And try to oh, speak. that's hilarious! Yeah, um, and I, I don't know. I don't know. What, like, as we like, what's interesting, linking it back to sightseers, is that yes. both Steve Orham and Alice Lowe have a very kind of rural, specific style of talking as well. They, you know, they I can hear not, that. They, they are using. They are playing very much into their kind of their their accents of the area that both characters. Are from which I mean works there. It also, in a lot of respects, I can imagine frustrates, you know, more foreign audiences or non-British audiences in trying to mm-hmm. understand exactly everything they're saying. And it's, it's something that like Ben Wheatley doubles down on in his next movie of a field in England. And he's like, "Oh fuck it, we're just like we're, we're all in. The chips are all in here." Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I find it. Listen, if you ever want to come to Scotland, I have a spare room and you're welcome oh. to stay with me and I will I will show oh. you the sights and we will drink the good whiskey in the good oh. places, my friend. And that I, is not, oh, that's recorded on this episode, so you can hold me to that. I don't throw that invitation out to just Ooh. anyone, buddy. So if you ever want, the offer is there. When this COVID-19 thing blows over. <laughs> when the planes are back in the sky, Duncan. Yeah. <laughs> oh man yeah we'll go on a road trip and do some sightseeing there that was my pathetic attempt to get, get us back on track pro level segue right there <laughs> um, so so basically the, the, the premise of sightseers is a fairly mundane one if I'm honest and what's, yeah. what's weird about it is that it works so well because of how kind of pedantic and mundane it actually is it's about a like fairly repressed um woman by the name of tina she still lives with her domineering mother uh who basically dictates absolutely everything that she does and a part of her feels like she's kind of missed out the best years might already be behind her and she's missing out she's recently become infatuated with Chris, who's played by Steve Orham. Chris is, to her, a fairly exotic person, which, like, makes me smile so much, in that he is the, the kind of poster child of what we would class as an anorak sort of person. And by that, I mean someone that would spot trains or be, you know, the kind of... The, the, you know, the, the kind of guy that you wouldn't instantly want to socialise with because he's a little bit weird. Um, and to him, <laughs> his idea of kind of broadening her horizons 
is really to take her on this like a vacation I'm using the American vernacular there but holiday and in this holiday yeah, yeah. that they're going to do of all the places they could go to really broaden their horizon they're going to go on a caravan trip around some local sites um, and that's just the simple premise the added spice that Wheatley brings here is that we find out relatively early in the movie that Chris is a serial killer. <laughs> like, uh, he's he's a guy that has some rage issues and when he gets the rage issues, actually what he likes to do is just kind of take his rage out on people and this kind of travelling about the place and his caravan kind of affords him the opportunity to exercise this kind of extracurricular activity. But what is the unexpected twist in this is that whereas someone like Tina should, for all intents and purposes, be mortified by this um, yeah. or repulsed by it, turns out she actually might be slightly more bloodthirsty than Chris. Um, so <laughs> it's, and and it's, it's, it's as simple as that. That's the premise of this movie. And what I love about it, and what we're going to touch on certain scenes because I do enjoy that, that kind of aspect of our conversation. But what I really love about this movie is that Ben Wheatley, off the back of doing Kill List, which is a movie that's very visually based in the British countryside, you know, he likes those big shots. It's kind of back doing it here, but he's just taking a different twist on it, a different spin on it. And his career started, uh, kind of Wheatley's career started working on, and I mentioned it like way back at the start, on this weird TV show. He did a whole season of it. The TV show was called Ideal, and it was put out by the BBC. And it is this strange, surrealist, almost Lynchian sort of kind of comedy about a local drug dealer who deals uh, dope from his house and people come to buy it and he's a lazy slob and it's re- really <laughs> mostly just set in this one apartment but the kind of cast of characters that come by are wholly bizarre and very very weird so when people thought you know, Wheatley, it's this new name in horror. Look at him go. Look at him, he's just done Kill List. Everything's getting tense. Everything's getting edgy. What's this comedy? To me, this made perfect sense. Like, as a, as a fan of Ideal, I was like, of course he's went back to doing comedy because he did a whole season of a TV show which is weird and very, very kind of abstractly funny. So this makes total sense. Now you, my friend, Mr. Watson, um, yes. right at the start, right two episodes ago, um, kind of regaled me with an anecdote of uh, Sightseers being a movie that you may have approached one too many whiskeys in. Uh, yes, sir. And and never really quite finished it. And this was the excuse to go back and partake in some Sightseers. Um, it's not, it should be no surprise to anyone that I, 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 I really, 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 really like this movie. Uh, I'm curious, coming back to watch this movie, some eight years removed from its release uh, and a couple of years removed from your your whiskey incident which once again <laughs> well jealous about i wish i'd been i, I wish i'd been uh, sitting sipping whiskey watching this movie um uh, what did you make of sightseers oh dude i mean right away okay i could see and i know y- you will have made this same observation right away i could see just from the visuals alone okay the, the movie i i hit play it's going right away 
I'm seeing that Wheatley has grown tremendously as a filmmaker since his debut with Down Terrace. Like, mm-hmm. of the three films we've examined thus far, this one included, Sightseers here is his most aesthetically pleasing movie to date. Like, those establishing shots we get of the, you know, the British countryside, the smooth camera work while our characters are on the road. Hell, uh, even the way this film is color corrected, it's quite pretty, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word, right? Whereas his previous two films are marked by their indie sensibilities, I guess you could say. This one looks as though it could be a big studio movie. Did, did you notice that? Oh, yeah. This is the, the this is the one to me that was... This is the one that, sitting down to watch it at first, I was like, has Wheatley... Like, within the first five minutes, the, the first time I watched it, I was like, has Wheatley sold out? <laughs> like, sure. Because this does, it looks like... It looks like proper money has been spent on this project. I think yeah. the movies the, the movie cost under one and a half million. Um, nice. And I'm like, you know, has this you know, <laughs> like what has happened here? Why why does the camera because even just to the way the shots are set up, it feels more assured. Um, it feels like he's more comfortable and confident. And like you see, the color correction work. It just makes this movie like. It, Killers benefits from like the dark and that kind of green yes. that appears to be on it. Whereas this movie like starts and it's bubbly and colorful, and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa what are we doing here? Because this it feels like it feels like proper budget. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so no. Exactly. I'm right there with you. And I, and man, I had such a good time with this movie. To to yeah. To I guess to to answer your question properly, I had a blast with this one, dude. It's got the weird thing about it is like humor is so subjective, right? And when you are basing your jokes on a very British sense of humor, but a very kind of narrow British line of humor as well. My concern okay. always is how well does that translate out with the country? It's like I love American stand-ups. I, you know, I, I, I don't like. I, I mean, I'm a. I obviously love stand-up comedians from my, my own country, but I'm a big fan of American comedians because I I find at times uh, American comedians can have a very dry approach to how they deliver their comedy, and I am someone that enjoys a, a particular dry sense of humor. That. I know that even when I'm watching American comedians, though, there is a good 50% of what they're talking about. I just don't understand whether it's celebrities or, like, uh-huh. sports or, you know, like, things that I just, like, I can't, I can't gravitate to. So I will laugh at maybe 50% of, of, of a stand-up routine because I get the joke. The other 50%, I can hear how other people are re- reacting to it and I'm like that. I, I, I will have to go and research this to find out why that's funny. Um, okay. <laughs> and my concern always is, especially with British comedy, is that yeah, like, there are certain levels of universal comedy, like thinking Monty Python, for example, or people that have transcended this sort of... Um, this confined here, I think of people like Billy Connolly, you know, for, as a great example, or someone like Eddie Izzard, whose comedy is like, it's, it's universal. It's just the, but both yeah. those comedians do a kind of surreal take on the absurdity of life. And I think that's a universal language. You know what I mean? It's like that, that transfers well. But when you're doing jokes about like, <laughs> like people that are on British caravanning holidays, I, I, I'm not always sure if that translates. Is this a funny movie to you? So I actually, I, okay, I do want to talk about the humor. So with regards to the comedic elements of sight series here, I have heard 
and read a number of criticisms to the effect that this movie isn't funny, like mm. that its jokes are, you know, either one, you know, like that they're one note in nature and that it feels like an extended sketch that wears its welcome before too long. But man, I have got to wholeheartedly disagree with that. Like this isn't the type of comedy that relies on jokes where there's a setup that leads to a punchline. That's not the formula that this movie chooses to utilize to get a laugh. Like the deal here is that many of the humorous things we see on screen are in fact humorous because of this script's deliberately, I guess you could say deadpan approach. And while Mm -hmm. that, okay, and while that might not be the sexiest and most mainstream way to present a comedy, I like humor like, or I I, I think humor like this often goes over people's heads. So I can see your concern there, Duncan, because I believe it's this film's biggest strength, this deadpan thing in terms of comedic value. We find our characters in these dark and quirky situations that end in bloodshed. And this film is not winking at the audience. It's not even laughing at itself. It's the filmic equivalent of someone like cracking a gut busting joke and just looking at you with a straight face. Mm-hmm. And none of this is to say that there aren't laugh out loud moments in the midst of the deadpan stuff. The scene with the dog jumping on the knitting needle sent me over the edge. I almost spit my drink out, Duncan. I'm, I'm just, I'm just this dude cackling in the dark in my living room all by myself in the house. That's my life, Duncan. But, <laughs> but what, what I really appreciated here is that most, if not all of the jokes relating to our characters quirks are fueled by their, 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 their delusional mindsets, not mm. even just our main characters, even, but also the mom, this side character and man, I think it's hilarious and effective. Not one note at all. I mean, w- w- are we the same? Are we on the same page here oh, yeah. as far as the approach to humor? Yeah, as as the way you describe it is the is is kind of where I land with this one. The cool. like, where we talk about deadpan. It, to me, it's matter of fact. Everything that happens is matter of fact. So the absurd situations that the characters are in. Um, are absurd to the viewer, but they are just matter of fact dealing with that moment. Um, I think it's, I think that's the, it, it adds levels of absurdity to what continues to spiral out. And the further yeah. we get into this, the more they try and, um, the the more that the relationship itself becomes freed. And they try and bring it back in together a few times. Um, the more carnage is kind of left, you know, at, at, <laughs> at their feet. And it just, it continues going out. By the time we are, you know, like, <laughs> by the time we're like in pubs uh, and seeing what is, you know, ostensibly, you know, a, like, a, like a hen night. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I try to think what they call what, what's a hen night in there? Is that like a bachelorette party? Bachelorette party, yeah. yeah. Yep. A, a Ladies' hen... night. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think we're getting to moments like that in here, and we're seeing this kind of power play between Chris and Tina for for dominance. Chris kind of oh. like wink, wink, nudge, nudge, flirting with a guy with a bike, um, and you know Chris being kind of enthralled by a group of of kind of drunken ladies on a ladies night and the the corresponding <laughs> retribution either character will take to nullify that to get the focus back on their very narcissistic world i oh. think is what makes this movie 
inherently funny. It's like the, the the there's a weird power struggle that starts to come out of this movie that culminates in an ending which I think is just flat out brilliant. It has a very kind of hammer horror approach to the end, and in that it just happens in credits, and you're like, what? what? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that is Hammer. <laughs> yeah, you know, every Good observation. Every Hammer movie is like, and then Dracula died. Credits. Um, you know, like it's like my, my favorite one is one that I've actually we've got a movie club on just now for for a podcast under the stairs, which is looking at one of the last Hammer movies. Um, it's a movie called uh, To the Devil a Daughter. It's based on a, a another Wheatley, a guy called Dennis Wheatley, um, who yep. was this occult author who wrote. The, the Devil Rides Out. Yeah, I wrote The Devil Rides Out and, um, you know, loved The Devil Rides Out. Thought, Oh, uh, that's one of my favorites. And I know it is yours because yeah. I listened to your episode recently where you were talking about how you're going to be discussing that soon or calling for reviews of that. Are you doing that on an episode? You said Movie Club? Yeah, so so Movie Club is doing it to the devil a daughter because I yes, thought that. that yeah, to, yeah. yeah. Because I thought that to, I'll be honest with you, The Devil Rides Out is my favorite Hammer movie. Like, absolutely yes. adore it. Um, oh, I just did it on the Horrorcast a couple weeks ago, man. Oh, so fucking good. Like, so it's like it's Christopher Lee's favorite role. Um, and yes. he became friends with the author, so he was very friendly with Dennis Wheatley, and kind of Dennis Wheatley loved the, the The Devil Rides Out. Loved it. It's actually a very faithful adaptation of the book. And cool. so it signed off on To the Devil a Daughter, which Dennis Wheatley fucking hated upon its release. Um, <laughs> and like, it, it carried all this baggage. Uh, I think even Christopher Lee was hugely apologetic for the way the movie turned out and all the rest. Wow. But it has maybe one of my favourite endings in the, the kind of history of cinema in that it's so abrupt. It's like, have you ever seen City of the Living Dead by uh, oh, yeah. by, by Fulci? Well, you know, like, and there's a mild spoiler here for City of the Living Dead. Like, Fulci clearly didn't have a clue how to finish that movie. So the screen just cracks. <laughs> like, it's quite, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, he's like that, well, that'll do. You know, like, <laughs> I'll take this movie as far as I can, crack the screen, move on, credits. Um, like, that approach is very similar to the end of uh, To the Devil of Daughter. And to be honest, it's very appropriately kind of used here and sightseers in that yeah. to be honest when the credits rolling at the end of this scene I don't really need any more story like it, like it's, it's the the, the kind of the battle for supremacy here the awakening of a character's desires are fully realised and as such credits you know what I mean I want to see that character then go back to society and try and no like, like that's that story done chapter closed let's move on um, i love that you said that duncan and i had the same feeling about midsummer danny with midsummer mm. like i i don't need her going back to america or you know and, and going back to you know do her dissertation and seeing how that is I, i'm fine with her smiling and the, as may queen and and then chapters done i love how you said that yeah that to me sometimes a story finishes appropriately when a character has like some like we don't always need to see the after effect of something sometimes the sometimes the culmination of everything that's happened before uh, that crescendo up to that moment is enough to roll credits i think sometimes yep. movies not all the time but sometimes movies can actually lessen the impact of a final scene by giving you that that almost the the, the kind of i call it the psycho ending you know where like in 
and Norman Bates was actually crazy because he killed his mother. You know, like, and they go into this yeah. detail, and it's that's fine in 1960, you know, where audiences have never seen anything like this, and like, what the fuck did I just see? That man was wearing a wig. And you know what I mean? It's like, like, <laughs> like and they, they sometimes need a little bit of handholding and a bit of an explanation, but. You know, like, post-2000, I don't think we need that. I think sometimes it's fine to say, you know, the bad guy died or the, the evil triumphed, which can sometimes be the case. It's all subjective. Um, and credits. I, I think that's an appropriate yeah. way to end some movies. And interestingly enough, Wheatley is that guy. If you look at all the Wheatley movies... That's exactly yeah. what that's exactly what Wheatley does in every movie up to this point, and FYI, we'll continue doing it beyond okay. this point. I was gonna ask, yeah. So, okay, that that's that's good to hear. And I, so, Duncan, I have something I want to run by you because Go I have a, a question here, and I'm trying to approach it. So, uh, okay, so the thing that I find most fascinating about this film is something you've touched on, and I want I want to go back there because I love how you talked about the power struggle between Chris and Tina. And I'm so uh, uh, intrigued by the, like, why they do, why these two central characters do the things they do. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, how the filmmakers choose to depict these things. So, okay, first off, to, you know, to be more clear here, to be clearer, we have Chris, whose murderous impulses have some semblance of a rhyme or reason to them, right? He operates according to some manner of a moral compass, if you will, which is <laughs> to say that for him... Killing isn't something he does for sport or purely for the thrill of it. He's at war with those who think of themselves as superior or who violate his his code of ethics, okay? But for Tina, like you mentioned earlier, like killing is simply emotional and even random at times. And you're surprised, I was at least, that she even got in on this in, in the first place. So mm-hmm. like you said, these two are at odds in this way with his order clashing with her chaos Mm -hmm. and that's a a fine contrast there in terms of character dynamics but what intrigues me most of all about this movie is that for whatever reason the story chooses to go the extra mile this is what i want to run by you the story chooses to go this extra mile by not allowing chris and tina's victims to simply be these disposable figures designed to inflate some body count like that first kill of the littering man he has a (laughs) family Dude, we see their reactions to the death of the snooty couple in the camper with the dog banjo. We actually get to know them. The bride-to-be that she chucks over the bridge, Martin. Every death in this movie, except for maybe the one that they, like, the the quick hit and run. Every single one of them has some kind of impact. And so I'm wondering, Duncan, and I want to run this by you. What do you think about this choice to humanize the murder victims? Like, does does that reflect poorly? On Chris and Tina, does the film want us to sympathize with and enjoy the company of these truly despicable people? Is this film pulling a trick on us, Duncan? What do you think? Because to me, you know, the, 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 they kill nobody they kill is an evil or bad person. Like Chris and Tina are the worst people in the room for sure. So what do you think we're supposed to take from them humanizing the murder victims? And what does that mean as we look at Chris and Tina? What do you think? I think, yeah, I think you've hit, like, something that I find really kind of interesting. Like, to me, like, Chris, like, when you describe it, like, it is, it's the the people that he perceives as being at a higher station or just don't obey the rules. And in a weird way, them not obeying the rules will make him break the law. It's like, it's sort of like the the worst law, you know, (laughs) like, don't don't murder. (laughs) Um, And he feels like he is, like, a kind of almost this... um, 
this 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 killer of product you know like the product is the the killing of someone who has done something wrong and what's weird about it as well as and in a lot of respects it's like that great line um and the 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 Thomas Harris books about Hannibal Lecter, where he basically says that like Hannibal Lecter, one of the main reasons he would kill someone is if someone was rude, or he he found that they kind of like um, they were ugly or you know ruined his his kind of his his sensibilities, um, and that's Chris, that's Chris like two et, yeah. Um, Tina's I think impulse is that she just doesn't understand why Chris does it. And even when it's explained to her, she's still, like she, Tina is not a clever person. Um, no, no, she's not. <laughs> she she is she's very sheltered. She doesn't understand this. So when she experiences like Chris killing someone, she takes it for all the wrong reasons, and as a result, awakens something in her that she finds very easy to do, like incredibly easy to do. Whereas I always get the impression that Chris has to... You have to step over that line before Chris will actually enact something. Whereas with Tina, you don't really. You just have to catch her at the wrong moment and that's you. The reason I think they humanise the... In some respects, the, the people that they kill is kind of twofold in, the, in, in, the, in Wheatley's approach. One, I think, is to highlight how... How terrible our two main antagonists slash protagonists <laughs> <Yeah>. are, <laughs> um, and the other reason is they are our archetypes of people that you will see on a camping holiday. They are like like uh, these these kind of almost poster children for um, for the, the the couple that have the caravan. If you've been on a caravan holiday, chances are you've met a couple like this before. If you went on a tour of a factory before. Chances are you've seen someone with an obnoxious family where someone's just you know like these are these are in a lot of respects I think to signal to the audience that these are annoying traits that we have to deal with people on a day to day basis and wouldn't you just like if you had the power oh. to kill them wouldn't okay. you just kill them <laughs> the and that's kind of in a lot of respects what Chris does Tina is the I think on some reason the well you know if you were prepared to do that well what you know what happens if you couldn't stop or what happens if you didn't have that filter or that code to do that you know and so it's like two examinations i think it's actually also very clever in, in that it understands that like serial killers themselves are really you know very rarely like-minded and when you look at couple killers the most famous in the uk being um either ian brady and myra henley who did the moore's murders which were basically murders of children which is very prominent in the uk um you know or someone like fred and rose west um these are like two people who were inherently evil regardless but when they came together, they became a special kind of evil, almost kind ah. of outdoing each other in the way that they approach things. So I think there's a bit of that in there as well. And I don't think Wheatley is leaning too much into that because that's very niche and you would have to understand it from a British perspective. But okay. I think he's he's highlighting it. I think if this movie was remade in America, the approach would be to have like the kind of, the you know, the, the kind of, annoying couple in the caravan where the dog would be like uh, kind of 
like a trailer park couple or something. Um, the 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 guy who is uh, you know dropping the litter and all the rest would be the the parent who has like six kids who just can't be bothered and they do things. I think these these are whilst they are regional to to country specific sort of types and tomes and whatnot, I think they are transferable as well. You can find these people. Anywhere, and I think oh, that's yeah. the, the the way you would have a movie like that. That's how I think the humanizing works in this movie. Is that the more time we spend with them, the more we're like, oh, it's like The Office. Like when you watch The Office, like if you've ever worked in the, like in an office, or it's like when you watch this is Spinal Tap. Like if you've ever been in a band, uh, which it was, yeah. like if you've ever, you know the guitarist who wants the amp that turns up to eleven, eleven, no, <laughs> no fucking reason, or owns a guitar he has no intention of ever playing. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> these these are these are transferable um, sort of character traits that are recognizable in the real world. And I think that's why he does it. He, the more time we spend with these 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 victims, these future victims, the more they are on one level inherently irritating, but two, we can visualise people that we've come across in our life. Yeah. And as such, you are... It's like, you've always... I mean, I'm, hopefully I'm not speaking out of turn. There are people that you're like, oh, I just wish you were dead and not here and at <laughs> my face and all the rest. And this movie allows you to vicariously be like, you know what, what happens if you could... Uh, the sad thing about it is, like, Chris, whilst he has a code, he's not a very good serial killer. No. In that. <laughs> and all he's doing is leaving a breadcrumb trail all the way through. And if anything, Tina's even more kind of sporadic approach to it is even worse. It's, yep. it's, if anything, it's sending an alarm along this trail that they're going. Chris can maybe hide it even though, you know, he's maybe the last person to see someone and maybe got in an altercation. Um, you wouldn't kill that person because people can go, well, he had that argument about the litter with that dude. Who, you know, like, you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily do that. But he's at least kind of smart about how he tries to clean up uh, a crime scene. Tina is not. Tina is leaving nope. evidence everywhere. Um, and it, it exacerbates their relationship because the way Chris looks at it is Chris is like, no, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> like, which, if anything, <laughs> is just adding another level of control that she's trying to escape from her mother. No, oh, you're doing that wrong, Tina. You're yes. doing that wrong. All she's done is found another person to tell her how to do the things. That, and it's weird that she reacts in such a way to Chris at the end that that next step might be well what what does she do if she goes back to see Carol um, you know the mother you know she's not going to last long what's going to happen if she interacts with people in her life that boss her she's a completely different person now um, and now that she's got that taste for blood and she will not be pushed over anymore um, you know what does that mean and that's why the genius of the movie is stopping it there because I don't need to see that I just know that she's a completely different character now and going back wow. to her life after that, it's probably going to mean that there's going to be more blood. So, Duncan, I, I, I cannot believe you just said what you, you, you just said, my friend, because my I have two bullet points and it, it concerns the ending and you basically just said them completely because I wanted to, uh, you know, I, I wanted to ask you what you make of Tina's decision to let go of Chris's hand at the end when, when they're about to jump. And I wanted to ask you, you know, are, are, how are we meant to view Tina's journey from being the spinster who lives with, you know, her crazy mom, 
you know, going from that point to engaging in a wholesale murder and then not following through with the suicide pact. Like, and I, I was going to ask, are we seeing the birth of a cold-blooded serial killer here who was doing away with the structure and order that Chris represents in order to embrace herself to the fullest, and particularly because she is trying to escape that control and that order because of her upbringing with her mother. I was, mm-hmm. you just said it. And I was going to ask you if you thought that was uh, sort of the the punctuation on the end there, and then I, you then you just said it before I could ask it. Yeah, that's <laughs> literally that is literally. I think Chris is the embodiment at the end of that movie of everything that has repressed Tina throughout her life and now that she's like carefree and she's found this new interest that she didn't know she had which is like death and murder um like the fact that like chris would be the you know like you know let's go and we'll hold hands and we'll jump together even though i think if um and this is where my memory fails me even though i watched this movie what on tuesday um I, I want to say that Tina's the one that puts the idea. <laughs> like, she's the one that sparks the idea of. Let's, oh, I, I think, think you're right. Yeah, I think she. What shows, like, if anything, she has now learned this really interesting lesson from not only Chris but from her mother of you know I can manipulate as well, and if I if I put things out in a rational way, then I can get people to do what I want. And the yes. the end of this movie is basically a suicide pact. On a, a large viaduct in um, in the British countryside, it's a huge drop, and Tina kind of talks Chris into this, and Chris is like, "Yeah, this is the only way we're going to get out. The police are going to get us. They're going to cat. You know, this is we're fucked. Let's let's do it." And they do the countdown, and Chris takes a step off, but Tina just doesn't go. <laughs> like, yeah, and Chris and then, and then roll credits. <laughs> yeah, Chris plummets to his death, and there's also a part of me that fully knows that Tina is aware that. If she says, you know, because she's mild-mannered, everyone that knows her before she went on this journey is she's this timid, mild-mannered person that, you know, lives with her mother and is dutiful and caring. No one will ever suspect her of anything. Like, she can go right back to normal life. I had and, not thought of that. Yeah, like, she she has the perfect alibi in that she is the most docile, um, like, person up until the point of all these murders. And there isn't really anything like she can play all this off on chris who then committed oh, suicide totally. at the end and it's, yeah. it's, it's like this it's like the, it's like the it's like the apprentice has become the master at the end of this like nice she she, she <laughs> is she is now darth vader you know like at well the end of this said. movie she 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 <laughs> she can go back and you, we know for a fact that she's going to go back and and take care of some business some overdue business never will this character be pushed in the same way oh and no it's it's a great journey because the first time we meet her, she's she's timidly trying to convince her mother to let her go on like a like a, a road trip, and her mum like who is like Ellen Davis that plays Carol is fucking brilliant because like when she's phoning, she's only been like a wee idea. Oh, I'm not well, and you know, like, <laughs> yeah. Like, even when she's lying on the bo- at the bottom of the stairs, <laughs> yeah, like all the all the things that she's trying to do to manipulate Tina to come back. And um, I like, I like Tina staying the course because she's 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 found some, something has awoken inside of her. What's really fun about this movie is that I recently watched there is a movie that Arrow Video have just put out 
um, on their streaming channels. I think I want to say that it's a movie that will be getting some sort of Blu-ray release because that seems to be the uh, some of the approaches of what they do nowadays. They're kind of doing the we'll put something out on a streaming platform for people to check out, and then you know later on down the line we're going to give you a little bit of a little bit of a physical release. Um, but the movie that they put out recently, and I'm just grabbing my list of movies so I can get the name exactly right because I've been saying it wrong to everyone and been corrected about a million times since, um, <laughs> is you unbelievable when you think you know something. It's a serial, a serial killer's guide to life, which is... My huh. review of that movie is simply in a world where sightseers doesn't exist. This is a really fresh, ambitious and bold comedy. Ah. But in a world where sightseers does exist, sadly it feels derivative. And in that okay. movie, it's about this timid, meek girl who does all these self-help courses and all the rest and then bumps into this woman who offers her a crash course on her self-help um kind of lifestyle and all it will require is her to travel cross country with her and what she doesn't know is she's a serial killer who is killing people all the, you know so it's that Ooh, and yeah. it's, it's it's weirdly on point with sightseers and to me the weird thing about it is that it took essentially eight years for someone to do another sightseers because when I finished watching this movie I was like that this is a genius comedy it's dark it's taking the serial killer subject which I find hugely interesting especially back in 2012 which is about the time I'm trying to think Dexter would have been coming to an end um, and we were all fascinated with with, with kind of even more so nowadays but um, with with this idea of like kind of quote-unquote sympathetic or journeys following a serial killer where you are following them as the main character and I just assumed when Sightseers had finished we were going to get a lot more movies kind of in this vein and it never happened. It's no, weird. It didn't. It, this huh. is, it didn't happen. And to me, I'm surprised because this feels like incredibly fertile ground for dark comedies I think you could very very easily do like a, a kind of failed serial killer or you know like some sort of slapstick like anything along those lines that you don't get and to be honest part of me is also kind of the opinion that like Wheatley does it so well that you know it would be instantly compared like I did with a movie eight years after six yeah. years instantly compared it right back and I wonder if that's why. I wonder if people see this movie. Because it critically, this movie did very well upon its release. It played festivals Good. to a great, um, great response. People that saw it on the festivals really fucking liked it. Um, and then it kind of came out and fizzled away. Um, Aww. Which is, a, which is a shame. People were still like, no, he's the more kill list, please. Um, please, sure. sir, can I have some more? Some you know, more so, kill list. <laughs> some more kill list, please, Gaffner. Um, that's the way, you know, like, that's, that's the way people went. And I, like, it's weird because, uh, to me, like, Wheatley will now not do something comedic until Free Fire, which is a movie we're discussing, what, three episodes from now? Um, okay. And the comedy kind of comes back in. In fact, his last two outings are 
movies that have comedic tones. His last movie that we'll discuss, uh, Happy Birthday Colin Burnstead, is an out and out kind of it's it's a kind of sightseer's comedy, and that it's got that kind of dry, matter of fact approach to like this is this is a this is a family get together and none of the family really like each other and now we're going to spend time with these absurd characters who nice just like and, and so he does get back there but it almost feels like he does sightseers and either he's purged it from his system or because it didn't become fucking massive that is sure. like right oh back to back to the genre stuff um i'm not sure huh. i'm not sure i've never heard him speak about the the success or the quote unquote fail failing of this movie but you are already like if you're making a movie like this you're already which is weird why you would do a field in England after this you are off putting a lot of an audience when you're doing a kind of British rural kind of murder comedy you know what I mean like you yeah you're, you're really kind of making a, a kind of insular statement to then have your next movie be a black and white folk horror movie set in period England during the Civil War, where people are going to speak in ye old English, to me is like, well, let's go even more fucking niche. <laughs> yes, niche. That's the word. He's, he keeps just niching down. It's very, yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's strange because the movie after that, which once again we're going to get to, is High Rise, which has fucking Tom Hiddleston in it. Yeah. And, you know, like, it's, it's, it's a big budget in uh, H.G. Ballard adaptation about social class which had a lot of money behind it so I don't know I don't. It's, I always find it fascinating when you, it's one of the reasons I love doing Opera Omnia is to chart, some directors will just make the same movie over and over and over again and that is fine and some directors are really good at it, one of my all time favourite directors, although like legitimately all time uh, and I know he is maybe the favourite director of your colleague um Dave Z is Dario Argento. Dario yep. Argento has made a huge career of 75% of his movies being essentially remakes of his first movie. Um, like, <laughs> yeah. Burger the Crystal Plumage sets out exactly what a Jallo needs to be, and almost every Jallo he's made after that is basically a variant on that Jallo. And that's and that, I'm fucking fine with that because whenever yeah. I watch them, the he puts a unique twist in it. He does something different, but I inherently know I'm watching the same story. Um, and then there are directors like Ben Wheatley, who never seem to do the same movie twice. Like yeah, ever. Th- like that's true. That's that is true. And and he's even going on. I think he's in talks to and and and, and I I I I did fact check this uh, before we jumped on the mic here. He is in talks to do his very first Hollywood movie with Tomb Raider two mm-hmm. with with uh, Alicia. I don't know how you say her 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 last name. Vikander, Vikander. Yeah. But yeah, so he might get his first uh, foray into Hollywood pretty soon. But, Once again, proving what you're saying that this guy reinvents himself with all his movies. But there is, and I know you're you're you're, you're either about to say it or you're going to agree with me here. There is something. There is a common thread that yes. he injects all throughout. And I and I think that's what's so cool about him. And, and you're opening my eyes to this, my friend. And I did want to ask you. I have two questions. Two mm-hmm. two last questions. One's just a yes or no. But the first one was: Is that the house in Down Terrace that we yes. see at the beginning there? Yes, it is. It is okay. It, okay, it was just color corrected differently and looked a little uh, decorated slightly since t- 2009. So slightly different since 2009. And then my last question is just a, another quick question. Uh, 
is uh <laughs> is Tina's mom dead after this? Oh <laughs> when, yeah, when Tina gets home. <laughs> I think I think I think uh, Carol is one pithy comment away from <laughs> one from pithy com- yeah from, from falling down a flight of stairs four times. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like, or accidentally being driven over twice. Um, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, she, she's, she's on, she's on the way out. Like, Tina is never going to have another person boss her again. Oh. Um, and that thing that you're talking about is, I think Wheatley has a voice that transcends, regardless how what genre he tackles or what story. There is a inherent voice that he injects into his movies. Um, and I think that's what makes him really interesting. And yeah, first Hollywood movie, like you attach him to any project, I will fucking see that. He's got, he's finished working with Netflix. He has a Netflix movie what? coming out, um, which is, and I'll need to find out the name of it. And I do this every time I blank on it, but it's a remake <laughs> of a Hitchcock movie. What? And what? It, it, yeah, Rebecca. So Rebecca is coming oh. out this year. Um, and I believe it's uh, so it's based on a Daphne du Maurier novel. She also did the story behind. Didn't she write the Don't Look Now? I'm sure she did. I'm sure I think she wrote, so. Yeah, I think she wrote Don't Look Now. So he's doing that, and I wow. heard him talk about this, and it's going to be it's produced for Netflix, and it's <laughs> for lack of a better word. Um, uh, it's black and white. <laughs> he's going. He's it going, is. Yeah, he's going full black and white for it. He's, he basically said he was doing. Netflix asked him to do it, and he said that he would only do it if he could make the movie his way. And they were like, "Cool, go for it." Wow, um, I, Duncan, you have gotten me stoked, dude. I yeah. I, I want to know about the 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 casting here because I mean we got Sir Lawrence Olivier going on, like <laughs> you know, in the original. Uh-huh. Uh, wow, um, is uh, Arnie Hammer is the only one that I know is okay. Cool, is is in this one. Um, to to the best of my knowledge, I'm sure there will be a ton of Wheatley folk. Like he he, he likes to carry actors over. It's one of the reasons I really like him because uh, he forged if like like the great. It's like Carpenter. Like Carpenter found a team that worked really well for him, and they worked yep. on about six movies back to back. Um, I, but I have whilst we were chatting. Uh, and I, I went to fact check Rebecca he has apparently announced that he's doing a feature length movie of that TV show that I mentioned right at the start Ideal is getting a full film release sometime in the future so oh hell yeah so yeah so um, if you ever really want to to, to <laughs> spend a whole day just going what the fuck did I watch watch that TV show <laughs> um, that is fucking bizarre really bizarre there's, there's a character who's like a, a kind of heavy hitter like kind of enforcer to like a local mobster who is if memory serves is called Mouseface and it's because he wears a giant plastic cartoon mouse face which is apparently glued to his face that's his character's backstory someone oh. has like stuck this giant mouse face and it is so fucking strange to see it's like so weirdly unsettling um and he's just a character that appears um so yeah he's doing that as well so yeah i mean dude we are in we are in the best time to be sitting talking about Wheatley because like I say, Netflix are working with them, so he's done Netflix stuff. Looks like he's going to Hollywood, and we are basically tracking this journey of a guy who starts off doing 
kind of music videos and viral marketing and then a bit of TV and then you know what he's going to self-finance this little this little dim terrace movie yeah. and then he's going to do this little horror movie because he, he loves horror movies and he's a little kill this thing and now he's doing a comedy so the budget's going up a little bit more and where that trajectory should see him fly towards the next bigger movie you know what what we're going to get from the guy is is not that at all like the the next one we get to discuss on this this particular show is one which is a little passion project for him it's financed by um kind of uh, grant money and whatnot it's made for very little uh, and it's this trippy weird bizarre movie called a field in england which is all black and white and all strange and has one of my favorite kind of standout horror sequences of all time there is a one shot in this one where a character is smiling maniacally and the terror on his face belies something we did not see seconds before and oh. whatever it was that made his face go that way haunts my fucking dreams man Honestly. oh i can't wait oh did did yeah everything's great but there's a question i need to ask you though buddy there's a question tell me or ask it flip yeah. it and reverse it here uh, a little bit uh, uh, Missy Elliott style um, <laughs> is like we, we are now three movies in there is one important question on this show that we have to do every every single yep. time um, if you're ordering these movies now is Sightseers his best one or are you still sticking with Kill List and let me let me put my cards on the table alright do it Sightseers is fucking great and I love it and it's well paced and well acted and well constructed and the, the budget's there and whatnot. It is, it is it is brilliant it is brilliant but for me Kill List is still topping the list Kill List is still the better movie I think because Kill List does it takes you on a journey which is just down the lane down the path of mindfuckery uh, into into the garden of I need to study this movie for a decade to understand all the subtext. Um, so it's my is my favourite. I'm interested if you are going to dissent at this point and if we're going to have conflicting opinions. Is Kill List still your favourite movie by Wheatley? Three movies in or has Sightseers taken the crown? Buddy, you just said everything I would have said if I'd gone first. Listen, not to take anything away from Sightseers, because what a film, man. What a flick. But um, but just like you said with Kill List, I can sit down with this as a text mm. and analyze it. I mean, what, what the things we talked about, I, I, I was like, man, I wish I took notes on what we talked about so we could do an episode two of Kill List. <laughs> you know, So Kill List <laughs> reigns supreme. With Sightseers right there, because it's a fantastic movie, and Down Terrace is great. There's nothing bad here, but yes, Kill List is is my guy. Nice, nice. So we're still on the same page. Uh, like I say, we are we are traveling at high speed velocity to movie number four, which will be making its way, ladies and gents, to you in April. Uh, you see, so you have time to go out and source a copy of A Field in England, which came out the following year. It was a very quick project for him. Um, and this is the one which, interestingly enough, like we, we kind of, in the last couple of days, uh, certain studios have announced that they're just, instead of like allowing the lack of theatres uh, being open and available to the public uh, stop them from releasing movies they're putting them out straight to VOD 
Um, so we're getting things like Invisible Man and The Hunt from Universal right on VOD uh, so people can get a chance to, to take them in. Wheatley did a really interesting experiment with a field in England which we'll basically touch on in the next episode uh, but he made the decision that not only was this movie going to be released in theatres for one day only but on the same day it was released in theatres you could buy the movie physically on Blu-ray or you could watch it on VOD. Uh, huh. All on the same day. Uh, wow. So you chose the way that you could view this movie, uh, which I think is a, a really interesting concept of um, rather than me only playing this for you know a couple of a couple of cinemas in the UK, these kind of indie cinemas that will play it, um, and you know it might never see it might play a festival circuit or something, and then you have to wait a bit of time, and then it'll eventually maybe make its way to VOD, and if we can get the money together maybe there's some distribution physically it was all consolidated into one push um, and I, w- I don't think I ever found out how that went <laughs> all I know is it didn't play anywhere near me um, uh, I-, I purchased it for v- for VOD and bought the Blu-ray on the same day to give him a wee bit extra money so because um, I love the guy and I want to see him continue to make movies but <laughs> that's that's where we're going in uh, in a couple of weeks time to a field in England for a little visit uh, he loves his fields in England I'll tell you that um, <laughs> is there anything that you want to plug at the end of the show you you were talking about horror cast you have an upcoming episode of uh, What Z um, anything you can tell us about those episodes what can we look forward to in the interim from the main that is Mr. Watson. Yes, yes, yes. So, yes, you can catch me on the Horrorcast. I'm one of the ensemble friends there, and uh, they do their show bi-weekly style, and I try to appear on at least two episodes a month. It's been it's been about a monthly show for me so far, <laughs> but that's okay. You can hear me there, and they're covering, they're doing uh, their coverage, Duncan, of mm-hmm. Hammer Horror. And yes. so the next several episodes are going to be Hammer Horror and the last several episodes have been. So I'm looking forward to getting my feet wet with, I don't know what the, I'd have to search. I don't have the roster in front of me right now of what two weeks from now's episode is going to be, but it will be Hammer. So if you're like, oh, hey, I know the Horrorcast guys and I like me some Hammer. Well, your added bonus is you get to hear me there now too. And so there's that. And if you're listening to this and you're hearing me for the first time on Opera Omnia, okay, here's what you need to do. Here's here's the important stuff. Get on your podcast catching app, whichever thing it is, search, type in W-A-T-Z-E-E, Watsy, okay? You'll then see a podcast called The Watsy Party Horror Show, okay? At this point, you don't have much other choice but to subscribe to that shit. It's podcaster extraordinaire <laughs> Dave Z and me giving you a monthly show that is essentially a one-stop shop for all your horror podcasting needs. Every episode's got a three-act structure where we give you that month's horror releases. In some cases, when I release it late, Duncan, the secret is I'll say, hey, here's what you missed last month. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> secrets. Secrets of the trade. Tricks of the trade, folks. So we give you Act 1, a that month's horror releases. Act 2, a topic of discussion. And then Act 3, an in-depth breakdown of a horror film of our choosing. Check us out there. The Watsy Party Horror Show. We'd love to have you. If you get value from Duncan's work under the stairs, okay? If Duncan has conditioned you to, to you to only search for shows at his level where it is no longer amateur hour, if you're looking for high production, tons of fun, psychological, philosophical examinations of horror movies, all that, 
and you're like, well, I've heard enough of this Duncan guy. Someone else give me that. Well, <laughs> all right, then come over to the Watsy Party Horror Show, and that's what you need in your life. We're part of the amazing Horphilia Podcasting Network, horphilia.com. Celebrate horror with us, folks. Duncan does. He, he's our he's our party peep. Join the party. Thank you, Duncan, for giving me the chance to podcast with you yet again. I almost wish that we could wait as you go into season two with whichever co-host you you know you use on season two and whichever director you highlight then season three hopefully enough time will have passed for ben weekly to or ben, ben weekly oh i did not mean that that was not even a freudian slip for <laughs> ben wheatley to have amassed another handful of films so we can do like opera omnia season five ben wheatley season two <laughs> featuring me Nothing would make me happier, man. Nothing would make me happier. Yeah, like the Watsy Party Hour is teapots approved. Like that's ah. like as mandatory listening. It should be in your library, and if it isn't, make sure you get on that because it is it is a satisfying three course meal in a podcast. Like you come out that one stuffed with horror knowledge and horror content, and it's fun. Uh, that's that's half the battle because anyone can read out statistics and facts and, yeah. and stories. But the, the, the enjoyable part of listening to that show is how much fun you make it. Um, so yeah, Thank go you. and check them out. Mr. Watson, we have concluded another great movie review and another great show. I can say that. I feel comfortable Ooh. in saying that. Oh. Uh, we will be back in one month's time. And in that month, we are going to be discussing a field in England. So... Please take care of yourselves. Uh, go out and check that movie. Everyone's got tons of free time now, so there should be no reason. <laughs> if you want, if you want to see a movie that's all about hallucinogens, that's your movie. If you want to see a movie that really makes you question what is going on around you and uh, and leave you with questions about what happens in the tent, then and I'm saying no more. Then uh, a field in England has your back. Uh, but from this episode of Opera Omnia. We are signing off. We will speak to you in one month's time. Take care, people. <laughs> <laughs>